Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Today, we share with you an episode from a different podcast, the American Law Institute's Reasonably Speaking. On July 6th, the United States Supreme Court decided that states can require presidential electors to vote for their party's candidate. Reasonably Speaking invited us to join a discussion about this ruling and what it could mean for the presidential election. So here it is. Please enjoy. The views and opinions expressed on Reasonably Speaking are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of the American Law Institute or the speakers' organizations. The content presented in this broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. Please be advised that episodes of Reasonably Speaking explore complex and often sensitive legal topics and may contain mature content. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reasonably Speaking. Today, our panelists are going to explore the recent Supreme Court ruling on faithless electors. This episode will discuss the implications of the Supreme Court opinion and consider a broader set of questions on the Electoral College system, as well as look ahead at what could happen in this year's election. Our first panelist today is Kate Shaw. Kate is a professor of law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at the Cardoza School of Law. Prior to this role, Kate worked in the White House Counsel's Office as a Special Assistant to the President and Associate Counsel to the President. She is a regular contributor on ABC News. She co-hosts the Supreme Court podcast Strict Scrutiny and serves as a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Our second panelist is Fernita Tolson of USC Gould School of Law. Fernita's scholarship and teaching are focused in the areas of election law, constitutional law, legal history, and employment discrimination. She has written on a wide range of topics, including partisan gerrymandering, campaign finance reform, the Elections Clause, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the 14th and 15th Amendments. Her forthcoming book, In Congress We Trust, The Evolution of Federal Voting Rights Enforcement from the Founding to the Present, will be published later this year. We are also joined by Ned Foley. Ned is a professor as well as the Director of Election Law at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. In addition to teaching, Ned is a nationally recognized author and scholar. His latest book, titled Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, The Rise, Demise, and Potential Restoration of the Jeffersonian Electoral College, was published earlier this year. Ned also served as the reporter on the American Law Institute's Principles of the Law of Election Administration, Non-Precinct Voting and Resolution of Ballot Counting Disputes. Ned and Fernita co-host the podcast Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In the days leading up to November 3rd, their podcast will continue to break down complex legal issues for listeners who care about democracy and elections. You can find a link to this podcast as well as to Kate's podcast, Strict Scrutiny, on this episode page on the ALI website. Finally, the moderator for today's episode is Steve Hefner, a colleague of Ned's at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Steve also serves as the Director of Clinical Programs at Moritz as well as the Director of the Moritz Legislation Clinic. He previously practiced law for five years in the Office of Senate Legal Counsel, U.S. Senate. 
His research interests are in legislative process issues and democratic theory, including election law. He served as the associate reporter on the American Law Institute's election administration principles. I will now turn over the microphone to Steve. So, Franita, Kate, and Ned, it's great to be with you again. It's been a busy flurry of activity at the Supreme Court this week as they finish their term. And of course, a pair of decisions included in this final week involve the question of faithless electors and the way in which the Electoral College works. And I'm very much looking forward during this episode of the ALI podcast to talk about the Electoral College and some of the concerns that maybe we ought to be thinking about now in connection with the current presidential election. Uh, Ned, why don't I invite you first to just sort of situate the discussion we're about to have in the context of the faithless elector decision, as it's being called, and then we'll broaden out from there. Sure. Thanks, Steve. Um, Well, I think the Supreme Court took these cases and approached them with what was mentioned at oral argument is the avoid chaos theory of judging. Uh, there was knowledge that this could be kind of a real wild card in our system and that could set things really a mess and kind of derail the whole election and the court was hoping to avoid that. And the decision announced this week um, tries to do that by saying states are entitled to bind their electors so that they're not faithless, meaning that they have to vote in the electoral college according to the popular vote in the in the state. So states have the power uh, to enforce these pledges and prevent electors from being faithless. But states have to exercise that power to make it work. Uh, the Supreme Court can't force the states to utilize that power. Uh, and some of the headlines that I saw after the decision kind of elided that point and didn't quite completely understand it and seemed to assume that the Supreme Court has now saved us from any mischief. They've just simply allowed the states to reduce mischief, but it's not clear that the state legislatures are going to take advantage of that. Um, There are only 15 states that have the rigorous uh, enforcement of these pledges of the kind that was in front of the court. Uh, 32 states try to have some sort of pledging system to prevent faithless electors, but that still leaves 18 states that don't have any laws of this type. Uh, So we could uh, see still the possibility of a faithless elector. I, I think the risk is small, but it's not zero. And it's a more meaningful risk if there's a really close result in the Electoral College. So, so I think the court was trying to do the country a favor, but I don't know if it's going to be successful. So that's kind of the decision. And then, you know, we could talk more broadly about how we have this Electoral College, which is somewhat understood by all of us as American citizens, but there's sort of details to the Electoral College process, including the 12th Amendment, which is the part of the Constitution that sets it up that the court talked a lot about. Um, but when you kind of look at that 12th Amendment and some of the procedures associated with it, you realize um, there's a lot of things that unfortunately could go wrong, some having to do with the idea of a faithless elector, but other things having to do just with the possibility of uh, competing uh, slates of electoral votes getting to Congress the way it happened back in 1876 in the Hayes-Tilden election. Um, The court mentioned in a footnote the the tragedy of a, a presidential candidate dying, and we don't like to think about that. That's kind of morbid, but but that is a kind of a hole in our system as well. So I think there's a lot for us to talk about uh, today. Well, and I would add to that list the operation of the Electoral Count Act itself, a statutory uh, scheme that is now quite antiquated and could have real impact on the way in which some of those kinds of controversies play out. Can I ask 
for any of you to react to one more question that relates to the faithless elector issue. I mean, Ned, you observed that there are a number of states that don't attempt to bind their electors to vote in line with the popular vote in their state. Uh, we often think about battleground states or swing states in the context of a presidential election. And of course, one of the interesting features of the possibility of a faithless elector is you could have a faithless elector in any state, would not need to be in a swing state or battleground state, so to speak. And I'm just wondering whether, Kate, thoughts about the way in which those kinds of risks might be uh, dispersed throughout the country, not just in the battlegrounds. Well, you know, I actually, um, when Ned was talking, it made me think about something that is not so much a legal observation as a sociological or kind of a constitutional culture observation. But that is, so Ned said, I think the chance of a faithless elector is pretty low in the upcoming cycle. And I wonder whether it is higher because the idea of faithlessness is now on the radar by virtue of the Supreme Court having taken it up in a way that it maybe wasn't previously. I remember reading an interview with one of the uh, faithless electors in the case. I think it was not Michael Baca, but Polly Baca. Um, because remember, there were two cases, one out of Colorado, one out of Washington. And she talked about having been approached with this idea that, you know, in fact, it isn't mandatory, um, or it, as it turns out, like her, her state did attempt to bind her, but that there was in theory, the possibility of defecting and voting inconsistently with the outcome of the state's popular vote. And it just, you know, the idea just hadn't crossed her mind. Um, and I wonder whether, and I think that Michael Baca, again, another one of the uh, faithless electors, talked about trying to organize. And there was a bit of a movement in 2016, these kind of self-identified Hamiltonian electors who would defect en masse. That, of course, did not happen in 2016. Uh, but again, I just to pose the question, it seems we're thinking about, is it actually, in a peculiar way, despite the Supreme Court's effort, um, to save the country from chaos. And I, I will note, I think it's interesting that although this avoid chaos principle was invoked explicitly at the oral argument, it wasn't actually in the opinion. I think it's sort of an undercurrent, but the opinion purports to just read the Constitution's text and historical practice and get to this interestingly unanimous result, um, but in fact doesn't say, you know, this is a consequentialist uh, mode of analysis that we are engaging in because we just can't possibly um, do this disservice to the country and its electoral system. So anyway, th there's a few thoughts in, in there in response, but I'd be curious to hear what the rest of you think about all of that. One thing that I thought was interesting to sort of piggyback on the point that even though the, the risk of a faith, faithless elector is low, I do think that the court's opinion was trying to inform how we think about the role of electors. Um, and perhaps they, the court is doing so with an eye towards influencing how not just, you know, everyday Americans think about it and people who are um, you know, deal with these types of legal issues, but also how Congress might approach um, its views of, of whether or not to, to count these votes, right? Because um, Justice Thomas's uh, opinion, his concurrence makes the point that, look, this is just, you know, the Constitution is silent on this. The court should just, it, it belongs to the states, right? The Constitution doesn't speak to this. But the court does not opt to go that simpler route, right? It was, that was an easy way to sort of resolve the, the court issue in front of the court. Instead, what you get is an opinion that sort of lays out a vision of what an elector does and who an elector is supposed to represent, right? An elector is supposed to represent the voice of the people, right? And so I think even though there is this undercurrent, as Kate mentions, of, you know, trying to prevent chaos, I also think that the majority opinion is trying to influence how we think about electors in the, in the event that disputes arise in the future, right? Because the, 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 
the opinion does not definitive, definitively resolve all the potential issues that could arise with the faithless elector. We just know that states can punish them now or remove them. Um, so I, I, I read the opinion with an eye towards, okay, so now we know uh, to the extent that there's this tension between these two founded in era, era Republican principles, right? This idea of the virtuous individual who uses their independent judgment to speak for the masses versus the idea that the elector is supposed to be a representative of uh, majoritarian sentiment, we know that the court falls on the, the line of that, that latter um, interpretation. And I think that there's value in that. Well, let me pick up that thread because, you know, one of the things that I know we've all been thinking about and have talked about some previously is the possibility that in a disputed election in a given state, a state legislature might choose to itself appoint a set of electors after election day. And we saw this talked about in 2000 in Florida. And then we've hypothesized the possibility of something like that happening again. What are any of your thoughts about that kind of possible electoral college conflict? Well, I'll uh, jump in on that. I, th I think um, Pranita is absolutely right that the majority opinion uh, by Justice Kagan seems to want to speak strongly in favor of popular sovereignty of the people. Um, but there is some other language in the opinion that's, that's in tension with that, just because of the way the Constitution is, is written. And as Kate said, that the court purports to be textualist in its uh, interpretation. You know, Article Two gives state legislatures the power to choose the manner of appointing electors. And this opinion quotes uh, 19th century precedent saying that that's a very broad plenary power. And so there is this nod to the, the, the possibility that state legislatures could appoint electors directly, uh, although they have chosen to, give, to delegate this appointment to, to the popular vote. Um, so I think, I, I don't know exactly, A, what would happen if a legislature tried to reassert that Article II of power to appoint electors directly. Um, there's another line or two in the, in the Justice Kagan's opinion that talks about how there are collateral constitutional constraints on Article Two. She mentions on behalf of the court equal protection. She says state can't appoint electors inconsistent with equal protection. And I guess they could have cited Bush versus Gore for that proposition, but chose not to. Um, so Steve, I think your question is a good one, and but I don't know what the answer is, and I'm curious what Kate and Fernita think on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a few thoughts. One is that, um, I think that Fernita's right to point to the kind of popular sovereignty thread in the opinion. And I think that all of that would influence how a decision by a legislature to attempt to appoint directly electors would be reviewed by courts. If, you know, there's a separate question that I think we could probably talk about whether any of this would be resolved by courts at all. Um, but if in fact it were, um, to the extent that a legislature were attempting not to usurp, but to implement popular will to the best of its ability by engaging in direct appointment if there was something like a genuinely failed election, whatever that might mean, because of COVID, because of some other kind of um, disaster or interference or disruption. And it was simply the legislature attempting to do its you know, best to figure out what the will of the people was, but rather than getting to a scientific certainty, or maybe it's unknowable, they decide to appoint legislators, they decide to appoint electors consistent with the will as far as they can determine it, uh, then that I think would be reviewed differently than an attempt by a legislature to 
disregard the sort of best, you know, ascertainable will of the voters of the state and to appoint instead a slate of electors that say tracks the partisan composition of the state legislature. So, so I do think that um, atmospherically, at least, all of that in the opinion might influence the way a particular legislative appointment decision uh, was reviewed. But, but I, 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 you know, one other thing I'll say is that, you know, uh, the Kagan opinion in a footnote, exactly as, as Ned says, uh, does suggest, and doesn't suggest this is an exhaustive list of potential constraints on the Article II power of the state legislature to directly appoint electors, but points to equal protection, points to the presidential qualifications clause. Um, but, you know, it seems clear to me, and I think that, you know, maybe I've, both of you have probably spoken about this as well, um, that there could be due process problems if we're talking about a state legislature that purports to appoint electors after the citizens have already cast their votes in a way that just wouldn't arise. I mean, Kagan seems to me to be speaking in the abstract about the constitutional authority of states to choose a direct appointment route, you know, which of course they do seem to textually have the power to do, but not to do so in order to override in some way after, say, votes have already been cast in a particular election cycle. I think I am in, in agreement um, because I'm sitting here thinking and I honestly don't know how this would play out for many of the reasons both Ned and Kate have identified. Um, but also my struggle is thinking about this in light of current case law, just in things that have unfolded in the, the with all the voting related litigation in, in the COVID era. Um, you know, we have been, we have lived under this regime where Bush versus Gore teaches us that the court frowns on post-election changes, right? Rule changes that change the, the circumstances under which people cast a ballot, right? So it would seem to me that if a state legislature comes in and tries to allocate a slate of electors after people have voted, that is a post-election change, right? Uh, but as Kate points out, there are any number of circumstances that could justify doing so, right? Um, but my struggle is that when I think about some of the COVID litigation, if the Supreme Court has frowned on the ability of states to make adjustments in a once in a lifetime global pandemic, how could they justify that type of accommodation in, a scenario, in the scenario that Steve laid out, right? Like to me, what we're going through now is the worst circumstances to be trying to cast a ballot, <laughs> right? And the Supreme Court has basically said, we don't care. Um, so given that, how is the state legislature allocating a slate of electors that you know obviously varies from what people voted for or it's contested or because if it was consistent we wouldn't be having this conversation um how can how can they justify that when they won't make an exception for what's going on currently i guess is my question so i don't know <laughs> so if i can jump back in for a second i mean i think kate very helpfully draws this contrast between the state legis legislature trying to act in service of the popular vote that's been disputed or, or uncertain in some way versus in opposition to the popular vote. But I suspect that that's more of a spectrum of, of a range of circumstances as opposed to a, just an easy dichotomy. And again, you know, we don't know what the world will look like on November 4th, 5th, or 6th, but it, there may be partisan contestation around just where we are on that spectrum and how to characterize you know, what the uncertainty is or how much uh, doubt there is about the popular vote and how much uh, adjustments there might need to be. And, well, Franita, I agree with you that the, the courts right now look either hostile or suspicious to voting rights claims in the era of COVID. You know, I think um, what the court's responses would be, again, you know, the, the week after election day to 
allegations of there being either a failed election or an election that needs some kind of an adjustment. I, I think there's so many different scenarios that could be painted. We just don't know what the world will present itself as and then what the partisans will try to do, uh, you know, to spin the truth, as it were, and try to tell a story to the courts that they should see it a certain way. Um, so I, I can imagine, um, you know, an argument just on the question of are we in the zone of legislative discretion in this regard, or, or would it be a due process violation for the legislature to act? Uh, and that would be, I mean, you could imagine the briefs being written, but I don't think there's any on-point precedent that would dictate how a court would handle that case, do you? No, but the way, the way you just uh, sort of identified some of the problems or the kind of partisan contestation that would be almost inevitable if we're talking about how to characterize what the legislature is doing um, makes me think that actually I should have flipped the order of my remarks and, and that in general, we should be thinking first about whether the due process concerns with a post-vote casting legislative appointment of electors are serious enough that there should be a heavy presumption against it, not an you know irrebuttable presumption if, if an election is sufficiently troubled in a particular state um, that the only alternative is not to send, I suppose, a slate of electors to Congress at all. I guess a legislative appointment is better. Um, I think it strikes me that the due process problems seem quite serious to me. And so a presumption against any kind of appointment once, elect, once voting has finished or even once voting has commenced potentially seems like a rule that would have support in general principles set forth in cases, even if you're, I completely agree there is no squarely on point precedent. Well, and you raised, Kate, the idea of, um, you, you sort of hinted at the notion that, well, maybe the state is so messed up that it can't have electoral votes in that particular election at all. And that's somehow better than having a kind of a false set of electoral votes that really are inconsistent with what the people of the state want. There's never been an election, I don't think, in which disqualified electoral votes would matter to who wins the presidency, you know, and that, and that's one of those nightmare scenarios um, that I hope we don't confront this year, but this year has been so strange that uh, we have to prepare, I guess, for any possible contingency. Why isn't that an option now, though, right? So we're, we're talking about this in the, the, in the context of what a court might do, right? So a court might say to this equal protection violation, right, for the state legislature to, oh, well, sorry, due process violation, um, for the legislature to um, send a different slate than what the majority voted for. Um, and that's, of course, assuming that it's clear. I mean, it, we, it could be Florida 2000 where the, the, you know, they're separated by 500 votes or something crazy like that. Um, or it could go to Congress, right? And Congress can decide. And even if Congress says that we can't decide and they pick, choose neither, that's still an outcome. Um, what's wrong with that? Well, I think you're right. I mean, and this goes back to Kate's question about, is this gonna be something that the court has the last word on or Congress has the last word on? I mean, you could imagine a court, let's say a court says that the legislature has acted in violation of due process by trying to appoint electors in opposition to the popular vote. Um, you know, I don't, and that's a declaratory judgment, okay. But is it an injunction against Congress? that you can't count these votes if that's what Congress wants to do. I, I'm not enough of an expert on sovereign immunity in Article Three to know, but I just can imagine an additional sets of procedural issues about the power of a federal court to tell Congress what to do in terms of its role under the 12th Amendment. Um, you know, nothing that Bush versus Gore involved and nothing that Hayes Tilden 
involved. So, um, you know, I, I think as important as it is to think about Justice Kagan's opinion for the court this week and the concept of how due process applies to Article Two, I, I think there's a political reality here as well as a jurisprudential one that Congress may have the last word if, unless Congress deadlocks. I mean, there is this risk that the Senate and the House because of partisanship or otherwise has different views. So you can imagine the Senate saying, hey, let's not count any electoral votes from Pennsylvania and the House saying, oh yes, we do want to count some. You know, that, that, that goes back to Steve's point about the Electoral Count Act being a statute that is you know, unclear in the situation. Right, I do, but I just think it's important to recognize that this doesn't necessarily, the opinion is not ignorant of political realities. I'm not sure Kagan is saying that the court would have the last word, right? Because one thing that struck me about footnote eight is, is that she says, look, yes, a presidential candidate might die, <laughs> right? But hopefully states will do the right thing. That is a very like non-judicial answer in some ways, right? She's not saying that the court will resolve it. She's not saying that's not entirely germane to this case. She's saying like, look, hopefully the states will kind of handle that or deal with it. Like it's a very sort of thing that's, that's very up in the air still after the opinion. And so to me, she's on one hand laying out this vision of what electors do, but on the other, she's not trying to resolve every possible, possible scenario that could come up with electors. And she's not saying it's within the realm of the court necessarily to, to, to figure it out, right? So in a way, she avoids many of the things that we're talking about today that are still directly relevant to how things might play out in November. Yeah, that footnote is the only place where the chaos principle, I think, gets explicitly invoked. And she says, you know, she talks about how much turmoil such an event could cause. Uh, so she is she is acknowledging it, but it's it's you're certainly right. There's nothing remotely directive about this kind of general hortatory language, like maybe states give the voter, you know, figure out something that doesn't totally disenfranchise the people who voted for the now deceased candidate. Um, uh, but it's, um, but that's sort of the only place that it is explicit in the opinion. So we've got a number of different issues now on the table. Let me just invite us to reflect for a minute more on something Ned teed up explicitly, which is the relative role of the courts versus Congress. And I'd like to just invite each of you, if you care to, to talk about whether the court's decision in the congressional subpoena case, the Mazars case uh, yesterday, gives us any indication of the way in which the US Supreme Court might itself back off or defer to Congress or see some of these issues around the Electoral Count Act as being non-justiciable perhaps. Is there something to be said from the Mazur's decision on that issue? You know, the, the court, remember, specifically requested briefing on whether the Mazur's case presented a non-justiciable political question and, and you know, Every, every, everyone said, no, it doesn't. So it wasn't even as though that was you know, presented in an adversary way to the court, but it is quite clear the court is very happy to resolve this type of separation of powers dispute and indeed seems um, you know, to assert a pretty broad authority to do so. Now it does acknowledge this kind of history of accommodation and negotiation between the political branches, but doesn't suggest that it is in any way deprived of jurisdiction to provide ultimate answers by virtue of a lot of you know, such disputes being resolved outside of the course historically. I mean, but the, the Mazar's opinion um, is a mixed bag, I think, for the president and Congress, respectively. Um, I do think it could have been more disempowering of Congress and particularly Congress's oversight power vis-a-vis -vis the president. Um, but it, it just feels to be like the combination of the Mazar's opinion, 
in some ways the impeachment, which just seems like a million years ago, but it was, you know, the acquittal was in February, um, in which there's somehow the logic that the, the House managers, by not seeking resolution of a bunch of kind of pressing testimonial and document access questions in the courts, um, sort of didn't properly pursue impeachment, something that, you know, I think really properly does happen inside of Congress and not doesn't involve the courts at all. Uh, and yet somehow that narrative was pretty successful, or at least was prevalent, whether it was responsible for the acquittal or not, like, no, I'm, I'm sure not. Um, but it does feel like we are in a moment of relative um, congressional weakness vis-a-vis um, -vis the other branches of government, I guess would be a takeaway from a bunch of developments of late. And so I wouldn't be confident of even Congress's own interest in asserting its ultimate authority or successfully asserting it as against the courts if it wished to do that. Like, you know, these kind of muscles atrophy in separation of powers disputes if they're not used. And it does feel to me as though Congress has, and I draw on Josh Chaffetz's work a lot, you know, this is a point that he makes quite, quite a lot, um, but that Congress has relinquished a lot of its powers and, and handed them over to courts specifically, and that that could come back uh, to haunt them if it were the case that there was a really hard question about whether Congress or courts had the ultimate uh, say in answering some disputed election question. If the courts stood ready and willing to intervene, would Congress attempt to assert its sort of primacy as against the courts and do it successfully? I don't feel that confident that it would. I agree 100%. I think that that, you know, I had a very similar thought in thinking about sort of the winners and losers uh, from the case. But um, one thing I, I think is a, a way of sort of thinking about the parallels between Mazur's and, um, and the faithless elector cases and, and thinking about the power and oversight of the branches. So um, the, one of the questions with the subpoenas is to what extent does it interfere with the president's ability to do his job, right? Um, you can ask a similar question when we uh, sort of explore the role between sort of judicial oversight and congressional oversight on this issue of uh, whether or not Congress should count the electoral vote of a faithless elector um, and whether or not there are issues of due process depending on how the electoral slate is developed. Like that is also a question that concerns separation of powers, right? So um, if the Constitution says that the vote shall be counted, to what extent does a judicial decision about the validity of the uh, actions of particular electors interfere with the ability of the vote to be counted, right? Part of the problem is that we're just dealing with that constitutional language. Sorry for the people who fetishize the Constitution. Apologies, but it's not it's not entirely clear um, what Congress's role is other than counting the votes, um, really. So, but but there still is this kind of standard question about would judicial action on any particular issue with the Electoral College interfere with Congress's ability to count the votes? Um, and I think that that we, the uh, cases from this week, Amazer, um, and I forget the name of the other one. Steve, you can uh, fill in the blank. But the, the one of the key... Vance. Vance, right. Yes, the New York case. Um, one of the, the key concerns of those cases was whether or not the it would interfere with the ability of the president to do his job. Well, so let me ask this more pointed question. Uh, Fernita, you talk about it's Congress's role simply to count the votes, but is it Congress's role to decide what the denominator is if there is a state which has failed to submit a slate of electors? Is that a congressional judgment that those electors are excluded from the count? 
You know, Ned and I talked to Derek Muller, who is of the opinion that, yes, it is Congress's job, right? But the text of the Constitution is not clear on that. Um, but it's, it's just one of those questions where, you know, and it goes back to Ned's question about if the court decides that there's a due process violation here, does that enjoin Congress from counting those votes, right? These are questions that we don't know the answer to because one, it's never come up, and then two, the constitutional text is not clear about it. But it is a, a basic question about trying to understand the role of each of these departments in, you know, deciding who the president is. And I think the interference question is an important one. And I think if I can go back to one of Kate's earlier observations or questions about whether, ironically, the, the, the decision this week or, or just the decision to take the case has now created more risk of a problem just by putting the concept of faithless electors in the air, as it were. Um, I tend to think of this area as, as a question of risk management and how do we reduce the likelihood of problems or, or uncertainty. Um, and I think there is something to Kate's point that inadvertently, not through the, anything the court's fault, but it just, you know, it, it might, this year again is so chaotic and so strange with the pandemic and with everything else going on. Um, the idea of new destabilizing events is unfortunately not so foreign. So, you know, again, if, if, if we were to end up on November 10th or 12th looking at something that looked like a 270, 268, or even a 269, 269 tie, I think culturally, you know, there would be talk about, is that movable by one or two faithless electors? Uh, so in that sense, I think we live in a, just in a, in a year of greater uncertainty because of the nature of our current political climate. Uh, and then I think, you know, as depending upon as events unfolded, you know, that uncertainty could increase or decrease depending upon various events and actors. So, if, you know, if a faithless elector emerged on December 14th when the Electoral College meets and, a, and attempts to be faithless, um, and, but the state says, oh, we don't want you to, and then there's this, just a, a dispute over that and two submissions of alternative votes just around that one electoral vote, you know, the court might, you know, might get back to court and the court might try to tell Congress, you know, based on our precedent, you're supposed to follow the popular sovereignty, not do what the faceless did. Now that may not be completely binding on Congress in any technical sense, but it might create a climate that makes it harder for Congress to kind of repudiate the court. You know, picking up on Kate's other point that if, 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 if the public perception of Congress is pretty low at the moment and the public perception of the court is relatively high, it might be harder for political actors in Congress to kind of go rogue relative to the court's pronouncement of what the constitution means. So the, the court may have a table setting function for what happens in Congress that's not the same thing as a, you know, like an injunction that runs against you and me as individuals and we have no choice. But the, we shouldn't lose sight that the, that the power of the table setting function might be really important this year. Just a quick response to what, what Nat pointed out, because I think that's a really important point. But I wonder the extent to which that has been diminished since 2016. Because there's really no penalty for bad behavior. If you think about it, right? So the table setting function works when people um, in power perceive the, the court as the final arbiter, right? As the sort of last word on things. And that certainly used to be true. And I think that's still true to some extent. But I wonder if we, we're living in a moment where constitutional norms have been so eroded that given the stakes of the presidency, people will just disregard the court. I think there's a higher risk of that this year than there have been in prior elections, prior modern elections, um, such that I'm not sure that the table setting function has the same power that it used to have. 
Well, that may be true, but but that goes back to what we we're talking about. You know, where I said that Kate's a useful dichotomy could be turned into a spectrum of with gray areas, right? Same point could apply here. You don't you don't have to say that the court has no table setting power. It has maybe less than it used to, but the question is, does it have enough? And it seems to me that that we're going to, you know, picking back up on the chaos metaphor, this year we're going to have forces of chaos, um, you know, up against forces of order or, or just, you know, reasonableness or, or, you know, normality. And the question is whether the forces of chaos win out because they're strong enough or whether the forces of normality and democracy and popular sovereignty win out. And, and it's not an all or nothing proposition necessarily. And, and, and so if we can if we can keep the level of uncertainty and the level of, of strangeness low enough, sanity may prevail. But if, it, if chaos breaks loose, then we won't be able to, to have a sane election. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm wondering about is, is what usefully can happen between now and election day in the interest of avoiding chaos. And, and I think some things are, you know, unavoidable. Like we have an electoral college, whether we like it or not, we're not going to get rid of it by November. But some of the ambiguities that Steve was mentioning in the Electoral Count Act, in theory, Congress could address if they had political will. Um, and so I think some attention ought to be um, spent now that we've got this decision. People were waiting for this decision. To see the, what, what's the court going to tell us about the Electoral College and this issue? I think some thought should be given, okay, now that we've got it, is there any more work to be done for the benefit of American democracy between now and November to increase the likelihood that we can have a successful election and reduce the risk of something bad happening. Um, can I, I, I do think we should talk in some detail about some of the sort of deficiencies in the electoral contact that you, I know, Ned, have written tons about. Um, but before that, can I just ask, do you think now that we have this decision that the states that don't have any binding mechanism for their electors would be well advised to, to, to pass laws doing that so that we act to reduce the chances of defections? And if so, like, do you see any sign that that is likely to happen in some of the states that don't at all bind their electors? So short answer, yes, I think they should. So far, I haven't seen any sign that they will. And is there, is it just like a lack of political will or, you know, crowded legislative calendar? Or is there some independent value that the states think? I mean, like, you know, is, is there value to a state and, um, you know, preserving a degree of ambiguity around it? I, I doubt it is that. I just, I don't know the answer. Yeah, my guess is that the states are so swamped now with just are they going to be able to successfully do vote by mail in an era where people are accusing vote by mail of you know being problematic and they've got to find poll workers. I know, Kate, you've been very active in trying to recruit students to, to be poll workers, which is a great thing because the need is desperate. So I think states are just so overwhelmed, they might not have the bandwidth to think about the faithless elector problem. Yeah, I think that that is a good idea, though, to have um, more legislation of that sort. But I, I can't think of anybody who's actually beating a drum about it either. Like, I don't, I can't think of an organization that has adopted that as like one of their key tenets or a focus or, you know, I don't. And I think that's part of the problem. Like, there hasn't been a lot of attention given to that as a, as a possibility. And it's a, a really important one. And of course, until the decisions this week, it would have been a little harder for groups to mobilize to do that. And now they can perhaps, but there are also some states that don't have regular legislative sessions year round. They in fact are only, only in session for a few weeks every couple of years in some places. So that might be part of it. So maybe now we could turn our attention to thinking about the kinds of achievable reforms or amendments to 
the Electoral Count Act that we'd like to see Congress take up. Of course, Congress is in session most of the year and uh, would be well advised now more than ever to think about some of those deficiencies. So what do each of you see as the principal problems in the Electoral Count Act? Again, this is this 140-year-old uh, statutory mechanism that in some fashion purports to govern the way in which Congress counts the various state tallies of their electoral voting. Well, if I could ask all of you what you think about an idea that Rick Pildes, one of our election law um, colleagues has put out there, he's wanted to distinguish between the calendar and dates associated with the Electoral Count Act and the way Congress sets up this whole structure versus the substantive rules, because his instinct is you'd be more likely to get Congress to be successful on changing the dates. And he doesn't see a need um, for there to be quite as much of a gap between December 14th, which is currently the date that Congress has set for the Electoral College to meet and officially vote for president, and then January 6th, which is the date that Congress receives those electoral votes from, this, from the states. And he thinks that could be compressed, giving states more time. You know, one of the things that Bush for Score showed us that, it's, that, that there's only five weeks between election day in November, you know, November 3rd this year, and the so-called safe harbor deadline, which is the, again, another date that Congress has set, that Congress has set if states can resolve any disputes over their electoral votes by that safe harbor deadline, Congress has pledged to respect the state's own resolution. Um, and five weeks proved really too short for Florida to complete its processes, as we know from Bush versus Gore. And so if you moved the, the safe harbor, if you made the safe harbor deadline the same date essentially as the meeting of the electors, and you made that you know, January, third or second to give states more time, then you know, you'd, you'd, you'd shorten this window between the, the Electoral College itself and the Congress's meeting, which was created in the 19th century and may, or in the 20, earlier 20th century, may not be necessary. So I'd be curious what, what other people think just on the calendar and whether that should be changed this year. That seems achievable and productive to me. Um, because there isn't really anything that has to happen in Congress right between December 14th and January 6th or really, you know, January, I'm not sure, but Jan or January 20th, really, but the action could be in a difficult, right, complex election in the states. And so I, that, 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 that strikes me as, as very good. I mean, the kind of the chaotic mess of the statute more broadly seems like a hard problem to solve in a very short period of time between now and the election. Um, but the calendar, not so much though. So my initial instinct, and I hadn't encountered that proposal, is that it's a very good one. It, it raised a question in my mind about whether or not there's been, and Nat, you will probably know this, if there's been any other instance outside of Florida where states have run into trouble with um, and I know Steve alluded to sort of like the crunch, but I mean, in Florida, we, we saw the clock run out, right? So has there been like anything that's the equivalent of that? You know, that just, Florida just happened to be outcome determinative, right? But I'm wondering like what this looks like in, in, in real life. So it wasn't outcome determinative, but way back in 1960, the Kennedy-Nixon election, Hawaii, um, had a recount and problems figuring out whether Nixon or, or Kennedy won Hawaii. And they ended up sending three different submissions to Congress. The first one was in favor of Nixon. Um, and I'm trying to remember exactly the details, but the, the, the key point for this is that it was even after the date that the electors met and voted that they finally figured out that Kennedy in fact won uh, 
on the recount. And so they sent an extra submission then that said, oops, we know we missed the date that the electors were supposed to vote, <laughs> but we really want to get it right. And, you know, Nixon was vice president, so he sat, you know, he presided over the joint session and he was careful to announce, I'm not setting a precedent for the future, but I think we ought to count the votes in favor of Kennedy. You know, so it was a, an act of magnanimity at the moment. It didn't make any, any difference, but, uh, but I think it was a dubious, uh, results because, you know, the Constitution says the electors are supposed to meet uh, in the, on the same day in all the states. And that's, that's so, so Hawaii can't really revise its electoral vote after the electors are supposed to meet. Um, you know, so that's, that's where another example of a, of a state trying to figure out who won but, but couldn't meet the deadline. So if the PILDIS proposal were adopted, it would give a state like Hawaii more time. Right. So it's not even, it doesn't even have to be sort of the crisis that, and, and 1960 was a crisis of a different sort, right? But like, just in terms of thinking about giving states time to try to arrive at the right answer, this proposal is a good one. And I would just add or be explicit about the point that in this particular election, the risks of a state not achieving the existing safe harbor deadline seem greater than we've ever seen before. That it's gotten harder rather than easier to make that deadline as the way in which we vote has shifted increasingly to absentee voting and early voting and provisional voting and so forth. And that this year in particular, the risks are substantially greater that states will have difficulty. And that's a combination both of the increased amount of mail-in voting and the increased likelihood that there will be litigation about the counting of some of those votes. I mean, even an undisputed state like New York may have trouble meeting the safe harbor deadline because of their rules about counting vote by, by mail. I mean, you know, uh, that would be ironic if New York was shut out of the Electoral College because it couldn't, you know, in the very first presidential election, New York failed to submit any electoral votes because they couldn't get their act together. So it wouldn't be the first time that New York messed up. I, and you said because of their, their their rules about counting, and I know that I think you, I've you, I've heard you talk about this before, um, but that New York and many other states right prohibit the, the, the starting of counting until the end of the, the end of the day on election day itself, or is it even after that? Like when 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 can the absentee uh, ballots be counted in states like in New York and other states? I may get it wrong. New York, I think, is unique in not being able to count for even days after election day for some for some reason. Then they ought to really change that um, that rule. Can I ask? Um, Though putting the, the timing issue to one side, which I think we all agree is an important one, and taking Kate's point that it may be hard to get Congress to think about the comp substantive complexities of the Electoral Count Act, you know, it, there is this view that the morass of verbiage in 3 U.S. Scenes Section 15, which is the main section of, of the Act, that when you parse it all out, that ultimately in a, in a dispute with multiple submissions from the same state, whichever submission bears the signature of the state's governor is ultimately supposed to be the controlling one. And it was a kind of arbitrary choice on the part of the Congress that adopted the statute um, because they knew that that could be politicized, but they thought at least the politics would be limited to the particular state and wouldn't be nationalized, right? In other words, you'd, 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 partisanship might affect one state, but not the whole nation. You know, if that's the right understanding of the rules as it exists, wouldn't it be better for Congress in some fashion just to acknowledge that before November 3rd and whether through amendment or through hearings or something as opposed to leaving open the possibility of contestation 
whether that is in fact the correct interpretation or there's an alternative interpretation, which would be again to kind of throw out all the electoral votes from the state. Um, because reducing uncertainty over something as consequential as that seems advantageous if achievable. It, it just may not be a, achievable. And I'm curious as to whether you think there should be any effort to try to do some of that uh, this year. I actually have two thoughts in response to that. The first is that I think you're right, but I wonder if that was more 1887 and less 2020, just in the sense of uh, whether or not the politics would stay localized. Um, there was certainly polarization in the 19th century, but like given how polarized we are now, I wonder if um, it is right to sort of think of that, think of the the structure of the act as, as trying to you know channel po politics so that it stays local. If there's any controversy, I, I I just think that it will automatically become nationalized because everything does. If you think about the amount of outside spending that goes into state and local races, right? Like it's like everything is nationalized now. Um, and that kind of feeds into my second point. My second point is that I think it's difficult to change anything about the act uh, in terms of political will, because one party benefits from the electoral college. And if you change it, that creates some uncertainty about who the changes will benefit, right? And so if one party benefits from the uncertainty, they have every incentive, incentive not to fix it because creating more certainty, it becomes unclear who benefits from that certainty if that makes sense. I mean, I, I, for what it's worth, I do think that um, some more definitive statement that there is a presumption, although not an absolute one, in favor of whatever slate bears the governor's signature in the situation in which there are competing slates would be a productive sort of background rule for, you know, kind of go, uh, creating some defaults going into uh, what could be a really uncertain fall. Um, I would just be wary of, you know, not creating some kind of release valve in the event there was a genuinely bad faith attempt to submit by a governor a slate that, you know, was wildly inconsistent with what really did appear to be, say, the will of the uh, voters of the state. So, but, but I think that you're right, that that is a fix that is simple and achievable. Again, I would just want to build some kind of, you know, potential release into it and query whether that would dramatically reduce its utility. But I, I think it might still be useful. I'd agree that a clarification like that has the potential to reduce some of the nightmare scenarios that exist out there about how the Electoral College could go awry. Um, I know we're running out of time for our conversation today, I'd love to give each of you a chance to just share what is your greatest worry about how the Electoral College might uh, misfire, what your nightmare scenario is, whether it's one that could be uh, alleviated by some of the reforms we've been talking about, or whether it's something else that is a result of some deeper problem in the, in the Electoral College process. But given the way in which this election year is shaping up, what is it that, that most concerns you about the Electoral College itself? And maybe I'd um, start with you, Kate. Do you have a, a nightmare? Um, you know, I'm going to let um, Dan and Fernita, who I view as much more expert than I am on the, some of the specifics, maybe provide some detailed scenarios if they want to. But um, one kind of general theme that I would say keeps me up at night um, is also something that ties into some of the writing that Ned has done on this topic, but that um, 
kind of the power of the president's bully pulpit um, to kind of shape a narrative around an election night that has some uncertain returns or returns that are, uh, you know, subject to some shifting over the course of the day and days, the day of election and the days to follow. And so I worry about um, the possibility of, you know, accusations of fraud and theft by a president um, being amplified by sort of a media ecosystem. Um, and I and I think that that is does not happen in a way that is independent from kind of the momentum of litigation. And so, so I guess to sort of identify the nightmare and then to also offer something constructive, it seems really, really important to me that the press, who are key players in all of this, understand that this election is going to look really different from every other election that we have ever had for the president before, um, and that we uh, all kind of have our expectations about the speed of returns and the kind of amount of uncertainty that we should be prepared for set appropriately going into the election. Um, and maybe I'll make one more observation, which is, um, you know, because we're at the end of the Supreme Court term and, you know, we're reading all the cases that come down, whether or not they have any sort of direct tie-in to these kinds of democracy questions. Um, I, I couldn't help but think about some of these questions in the, and, and also to Fernita's point about the Supreme Court seeming unwillingness to protect voting in the context of this pandemic, at least in the Wisconsin uh, case in April and an Alabama case a, a couple of weeks ago in which the court has stepped in to prevent uh, remedial orders by district courts that would have very, I think, modestly expanded access to absentee voting. And so the signs are not very encouraging that the court, the Supreme Court, at least, is going to be in a position to try to facilitate uh, voting uh, during this pandemic. Um, but there are cases, and in particular, the SALA law case, which at a glance is sort of far afield from what we're talking about here, that under the Constitution, the executive power is vested in a president, and that, you know, in order, so, so, the, the framers, you know, very specifically gave the president all of this power, and it's a constitution that likes to spread and, you know, check power, but it, it's okay to lodge so much power in the president because the president is subject to the ultimate check, right, which is the people. Uh, only the president is elected by the entire nation, and it's like this concept that does a ton of work in our law, and I, I, I you know, you could use that to critique the electoral college, but even within the system that we have, it seems so problematic to me for the Supreme Court to exalt that idea to the point that it leads it to invalidate congressional enactments about you know agency structure and things like that, but isn't willing to do the work of actually ensuring that it's not just kind of this useful fiction, but in fact describes the process of choosing our our, 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 our political leaders and in particular the president. Um, so those are some you know somewhat scattered responses uh, uh, to your question, um, but 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 hopefully somewhat useful ones. I'm trying to think of something positive to say. Um, usually on our podcast, Ned's positive and, and I am negative. I like asked for a nightmare for, for Nita. I, I know, but you have to like. You, but the second part of your question was, how do we fix it? Has anything we talked about today fixed it? Uh, and uh, so my, my, my nightmare, I actually kind of expect to come to pass, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, I think it is it's entirely likely that we won't know who won on election night um, and that the president will use his pulpit to sort of promote this idea that there is fraud or mishandling in the election. Um, and then if he loses, I don't think he'll go quiet in the night. And so it creates sort of this national reckoning about our political system. Um, and that is my, my, my greatest fear. Um, and uh, I just, I can't think of a, a, a good solution to that, right? I can't think of a good response. Um, another fear I have is 269, 269. 
Um, and, you know, that, that seems unlikely to me, but the fact that it's possible in light of everything that I just said prior terrifies me. So these are the things that keep me up at night. Um, and under normal circumstances, I sort of lay out my nightmare. And then Ned says, but wait, Fernita, we have all of these beautiful things that we can do. And I feel better about it. So um, I, I'll actually leave that to Ned. He can still, because <laughs> for me, I'm like, the, the nightmares are what consume me. And I have a difficult time trying to see a way out of it. Because it's just that things look so different now than they did even a, a few years ago, just in terms of like where we are in our democracy. And um, I wouldn't say that I was... Um, I felt so hopeless about it, but I do think with the Supreme Court decision and RNC versus DNC and, and the fact that, you know, we've had orders, as Kate points out, to make it more difficult for district courts to craft um, solutions to the, the problems of voting in a time of COVID. I just think that we are in a place in our democracy where we are at a reckoning, right? And um, I think November may force our hand to decide what kind of policy we want to be moving forward. And um, I don't have a good answer to, to how do we fix that or how do we get past that? Because it just seems so overwhelming to me. It's such a big question, right? What is the, what is the American democracy, you know, post-November? What does it look like? Who are we as a people? Um, and this is not, and, and as election law scholars, we talk about the micro level rules that govern our elections and, you know, how we can fix things. Like, even if we could fix the Electoral Count Act of 1887, um, it still doesn't, to me, address sort of core questions about who we are as Americans and what type of society do we want to live in. And to me, this election raises those questions. Um, so I'll stop there. Thanks, Benita. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so I subdivide possible nightmares into different categories. Um, so in keeping with what Fernita just said, I can imagine some outcomes which are very inconsistent with my conception of you know, a fair election or democracy, but that unfortunately are tolerable under the legal regime that we have. You know, the, the, the easiest one to imagine is another split between the so-called national popular vote and just a clear electoral college outcome uh, that, you know, frustrates the will of the people. And that could be even wider than it was in 2016 or 2000. And it would be the, you know, if it happened again, it would be the third time in this, you know, young century. Um, but, you know, as bad as that would be from a Sort of a normative perspective about the way to run a democracy if there wasn't any legal dispute about it the law would have a definitive answer and as long as there wasn't civil unrest around it you know we'd be kind of stuck with a, a bad outcome from a again a small d democracy perspective but the law would be that's the system that we have and and, and i would put the 269 269 into that category because you know as awful as it would be from a democracy perspective to have the house of representatives pick a president based on a one vote for each state rule, which is what the 12th Amendment says, where you have California and Wyoming having one vote each, despite the vast, you know, population disparities, um, you know, the, the Constitution is clear that that's the procedure. So that would be a, a kind of nightmare, but, but a different one than my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare is that we have serious civil unrest associated with legal ambiguity as, as, as fighting over the, the results of the election snowballs and gets worse and worse as we propel towards January. Um, so the worst version of that nightmare is that in the period of time between January 6th and January 20th, there's still doubt and debate as to who's going to be president at noon on January 20th. And that debate is fueled by these um, uncertainties of the Electoral Count Act and the 12th Amendment uh, that allow both sides to make competing claims. Um, so I, that's why I'm, I would hope that we could try to reduce 
the zone of un uncertainty to minimize the risk of that, you know, serious civil unrest. Because I think, you know, if, if, if the morning of January 20th arrives and you still have both candidates claiming the right to be president at noon, you know, I think our anxiety level is completely through the roof at that point. I mean, it's anxious enough on November 4th not to know the winner, but if we still don't know the morning of January 20th, I think, you know, the country is in serious trouble. Um, so that's why I do think some congressional hearings on this topic are worthwhile. Even if Congress doesn't act, I think just, you know, a better knowledge within Congress and, and within the media and within the, the public that cares about these things and just what the rules are, what the issues are, what the possible ambiguities are, you know, could help if, if ever this becomes necessary that we have to really talk about this in a serious way after November 3rd. So, you know, so that's my nightmare and that's how I would try to address it as best as possible to, to make it go away. Just to sort of piggyback on that, I don't mean to suggest that Congress shouldn't do something, right? So we should definitely take steps as if we're, looking, we're living in a uh, normal <laughs> legal regime, right? But I do think it's important to understand that there are wild cards, right, that uh, make it difficult for uh, the nightmare scenario to, to improve for me. Right. So even if we take steps and we, we, we amend things, you never know what will be tweeted out on November 4th. Right. You have no sense of um, whether the lines will be, you know, 90 minutes versus four or five and six hours on Election Day. Right. There's just always these these things that keep happening because we don't address the core structural failures in our system. Anything we do between now and November will be a small fix which is fine to some extent, right? Like the question is, what can we do that will make things better? Um, but at some point we have to have a, you know, as we say back home, a come to Jesus moment about fixing the structural things that make it difficult for us to be a healthy democracy. Anything that happens without sort of addressing those core failures will be a small fix. No, that's right, that's right. Um... You know, I, unfortunately, I think we're not going to be to meet the standard that you rightly want to hold us to, because I fear that we are going to have four-hour lines somewhere, five-hour lines somewhere. Yes, and that's why I'm bad cop and you're good cop, though. It works. Well, Ned and Fernita and Kate, thanks to all three of you for being part of this conversation today. Uh, lots of work yet to be done in our uh, own respective worlds and uh, communities and fields, as well as more generally to build greater public awareness and legislative awareness and judicial awareness of, of so many of these possibilities. So um, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Reasonably Speaking. Visit ALI.org to learn more about this important topic and our speakers. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Reasonably Speaking is produced by the American Law Institute with audio engineering by Kathleen Morton and digital editing by Sarah Ferrero. Podcast episodes are moderated by Jennifer Marinigo and I'm Sean Kellum.